Race matters. 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 I know I will tell those stories. I can feel it in my ancestral bone rattle. I know I will get there, but I'm not going to do it before I have the resources, before I have the power to run the whole damn game. And I'm not going to do it just to advance my own career. Navigating the UK as a black British woman is always going to be difficult because most of the land we walk on represents something of the brutality against my ancestors. And then now I'm more on the journey of um, dealing with like mental health and my own mental um, exploration of what it means to be a man. It's, it's, it's a mental reflection of, of who I am. I feel like the relationship to like you know, my blackness and black culture is really intrinsic and it's like, it's like wide open as well, you know, because I, I also think like blackness is so big and it's not really like a monolith. I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. Storytelling and deeply rooted creativity flows well into today's episode with the third installment of the Beyond Borders series produced by artist and radio extraordinaire Binta Yard. It's a series that's held conversation with artists across the Black diasporic experience here and in the UK, defying mainstream assumptions about their work and lived experiences. We continue to hear the depths of these conversations today as Binter explores storytelling through the art practices of film, theatre, photography and dance, both the long lineages these forms have within the Black diasporic experiences whilst continuing to radically evolve, expand and respond to the world around us. Two interviews in this episode took place on Gadigal land, so I'd like to pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to all elders past and present. And because this episode is about storytelling, I also want to acknowledge the long, long culture of storytelling that has been protected and upheld by First Nations people in so-called Australia for tens of thousands of years. 
Even though this podcast focuses on the African diaspora, when it comes to stories told in so-called Australia, the road will always lead back to the legacy of Indigenous Australians. space, art has been a tool of resistance used by the oppressed to preserve, express and admire the cultures and identities that they'd been convinced they should be ashamed of, sending the message that you can take our land and you can take our people but you can't take our ability to feel proud of where we come from. Black art to me is a reclamation of sorts, it's inherently a statement of self-determination, a statement that we won't be defined by how we're perceived or portrayed by the oppressor. There's something about art created by people of the diaspora that just hits different. Maybe it's this innate sense of kinship or like a moral recognition or the feeling of being seen. Or maybe we just tend to identify more with art created by people who have this shared baseline experience. But personally speaking, there is no group of artists in this world that can get an emotional reaction out of me the way that black artists can, whether it's positive negative, whatever, it just makes me feel something. Which when you actually deep it, it's such a powerful ability to have, to be able to make a stranger feel something from a creation that you made completely independently of them. Like I can honestly say, I've felt more looking at artworks created by emerging black artists than I have looking at the Mona Lisa or the paintings in the Sixteen Chapel. And I know I'm not alone in feeling that way either, so I guess you could say that black art is in big part what keeps this idea of black community going, right? You know, you'll hear people speaking about black community like we all know each other and we all get along and we all think the same, and while I don't really think there's much substance to that, it is true that there are certain tiny threads that have managed to keep black people of all generations and all backgrounds connected over and above their differences. Music is one of them and over and above that I think it's storytelling. Whether it's painting, drama, film, photography, sculpture, whatever, all of these forms of storytelling have kept our cultures alive. Storytelling has kept black people across the world, and not just black people, people of all cultures, bonded with their skin folk for thousands of years. Although there are pockets of progress, we're very much still living in times where the stories of black folk are cherry-picked for shock value and their potential appeal to a white spectator. The most successful films centred around black stories are almost completely about black trauma. Where we can get thousands of light-hearted movies about an attractive white girl who meets a conventionally attractive white guy and they overcome some trivial bullshit and they live happily ever after. (laughs) It's like production centering black stories that are mostly created by white people have this unspoken rule that there has to be at least one insanely traumatic racial element added to the story for it to be deemed consumable. Mundanity and simplicity aren't something that are ever really associated with black stories. And that's why it's important to have black artists being the ones to tell the stories of their people, because there's an understanding, in fact, it's just a given really, that not every black person's story has to be made valid by the fact that they've had to fight for their right to simply be at one point or another, because the reality is that's not everyone's experience.
The stories of our people and our experiences are what connect us across borders. They're important and doing them justice is no small feat. So how do black storytellers navigate these white, male-dominated landscapes to bring the stories they feel matter to the forefront without indulging these overplayed depictions of black experiences? Who better to ask than not one, but two black women who have made storytelling their craft and their career and have done so while staying true to themselves and bodying their respective industries. The first is Hannah Amwiro of Sydney, Australia. She just had her first feature film premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival and the Sydney Film Festival. So, you know, minor things, minor things. And Chino Adimba, who's a playwright, a creative director, and the CEO of Teatro Fahodzi here in the UK, who's done years of work centering black stories in theatre, an area of the art which has steady stayed under representing black actors and black stories. I ain't gonna waste no time. My name is Hannah Amwiro. I am a black Arab woman born and raised and living and working on Gadigal land where sovereignty has never been ceded. I am a descendant of the Kwambi people of northern Namibia and from the regions of Kuspa and Frisorb in northern Lebanon. I am a screenwriter and radio producer at Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM. And that's me. So my first question for you is how does your blackness inspire your writing and the stories you seek to tell? Fuck, that's a hard question. When I started to write, I would write about a lot about music and culture. And then when I moved into telling screen stories, I don't want to say that changed a lot. Like, obviously, I still want to write about our culture and tell our stories. But doing that in Australia was hard. I realised very quickly the content that I was consuming, the black content I was consuming and the content that I wanted to write for us here, they weren't ready, but I needed my craft to get better, right? If I was going to shift something, I needed to be really good at what I did. And so I was choosing projects where I was going to learn, but I was also choosing projects where I could bring my worldview to it. So... I use a lot of radical black feminist literature to inform the emotional experiences of my work. If people are asking for a certain emotional tone, I will always use black text in in unpacking that emotional stuff, in unpacking the visual stuff, like all the references I use for myself are predominantly black or not white. And what I've come to realise is that's how I was raised. I wasn't raised with a lot of white culture around. I was raised with Arab culture, with South African and when apartheid ended, Namibian culture. I was raised in Jamaican culture, but also specifically Rastafarian culture. We also had like a lot of strong family ties 
to First Nations and Indigenous people. And it was all that art that inspires me and the way those people organised to make art and collaborated and did all these amazing things. Like we as kids would just run around these amazing things that people had organised. And so I would say that's how my blackness informs art and shapes the way I want to tell stories. And I consider myself a radical black feminist. So I use a lot of Audre Lorde, a lot of bell hooks to, one, understand the world. You know, I need someone that is in my lived experience to kind of give me knowledge, give me wisdom as an ancestor or an elder. And then I can take that experience and put it into words that explain images. And for some reason, when I do that process, my writing really sings to people, no matter what it's about. Do you feel like, though, that because you're creating in Australia, as opposed to maybe being in the UK or the US or somewhere that has a stronger Black community and African diasporic community, that you've had to put not push your blackness to the side fully, but maybe, like you said, buried it a bit deeper in your inspiration. Yeah, I would. And I can tell you why. Because I come from like a very critical thinking household, we've had these conversations about whether my own community or other black people might look at me and say that I'm choosing through my artistic work to distance myself from blackness. I'm not. I'm really trying to choose projects where I'm gonna, my craft is going to get better because that is very important to me. I do stuff with black people outside in industries that I understand more and I know I can work to keep people safe. Now, my problem with doing that in screen is, is not just that people weren't ready, is that I refuse, I refuse to throw my community under the bus to move my career forward. And what I've seen, because I had one project that was about us very early on in my career, and I was still the only black person in the room. I was able to push with the help of the person whose story it was, who was a black woman. But two weeks later, I got a call from the white man that they had hired to write the outlines and he wanted to undo a lot of the work that I'd pushed for in the room and I thought if this isn't safe for me just me alone in this room I don't know if I can do this and I called the black woman I called a couple other people and I just was like look I know in one world this would seem like the biggest opportunity ever but I don't think this is it for us I just don't think it's it And everyone said, that is so cool. Let's go on to keep doing our thing. And the people I watch say yes to those kind of things, some of them have been run out of the country. And this ain't even our land to run anyone off. And that's what I mean. Going back when I say craft is very, very important to me and telling a story at the right time is important to me, you know, I know I will tell those stories. I can feel it in my ancestral bone rattle. I know I will get there, but I'm not going to do it before I have the resources, before I have the power to run the whole damn game. And 
I'm not going to do it just to advance my own career. I have to be taking everyone with me. That's mad because it really does show a love for the craft beyond like the desire for like conventional success or to be the first because a lot of people would throw the community under the bus for the sake of being the first to achieve certain things. So the fact that you won't do it and in fact it sounds like you'd rather not be the first and you'd rather be in a position where you have a whole team of people that you can say like look at this black team of people who are helping me create this black project and we're doing it right with the right amount of resources and stuff like that's really really commendable i think especially cuz like screenwriting and just working in visual media generally you know drama tv film whatever it's so intrinsically collaborative so if you're working in a in a male dominated a white dominated landscape like you are now when you get to the point where you inevitably have to open up your vision to criticism and suggestions from the people who are bankrolling the production or the people who have more accolades than you whose voice is carrying more weight in the room how do you navigate that and still keep the integrity of your work it's interesting i never think of my voice as having less weight than someone i know in reality there are those hierarchical things but like i said i've been very considered in the environments that I choose to put myself in. And I haven't done a lot yet. I've done one feature film, a digital series, some TV rooms or whatever. I'm not emerging, but I'm not mid-career, right? But I, yeah, I've been very considered about the environments I've put myself in and been lucky enough that I've made the right choice and those people have respected my point of view to the point where I haven't felt that Now, back to what you were saying about laying yourself bare and being criticized. I take notes. I don't know how to take a note, but I also know how to read between the lines of notes if I think something isn't right. So like example, the film that I co-wrote with Del Catherine Barton, Blaze, it involves police procedure and court procedure, and from day dot, I was like I am not writing a movie where the criminal is convicted and goes to jail because i don't believe the justice system functions that way for black people and for women and for any marginalized people right so i'm never going to write that in those early drafts one of the notes that kept coming back is we don't believe that the guy would have been put in jail every time i got that note i asked the producer was did the note come from a man or a white person. And often it didn't. I said I'm not doing that. But like no one they never pushed me to do it. But that note still came. Right? Notes are great. Notes usually make your work better. Screenwriting, screen work, it's a collaborative process. And if you trust the people around you, then you also have to trust that at some point you might be too close to it to see what they say. So when we speak about the importance of highlighting the experiences of the African diaspora in Australia I think it's essential to acknowledge more than acknowledge actually to explore how the continuing legacy of First Nations people of so-called Australia exists within this push for more diversity in film and television. So you know as a second or third generation Australian how do you go about recognizing and i suppose honoring the plight of the custodians of this land in your creative process and in your work 
I think it's prior to the work. Solidarity and understanding the colonial project of this nation. Our existence means that the primary concern should be the ongoing resistance to the colonial project. Now, my experience was very much grounded in Arabness and Blackness. Not everyone has that. And, and radical politics, right? Like my parents, you know, they knew what was up a long time. So it exists outside of my work. I, again, in the same way, I wouldn't throw my community under the bus to further my career. The way I move is I would never also do that to First Nations people here. Now, I will still bring that same decolonial framework to things and screen work. One of the primary things that frustrates me about, I'll, I'll just say Australian film, because I, I don't want to say TV has it too, but film does, is the way this land looks on their film. There's something about the way, not all, but most white people see and hear this land that is, when I see it on screen, it doesn't look the same to me. But then if you watch something by Warwick Thornton, who understand how not only how light works on this land, but how the technology of the camera capturing the light needs to be shifted a little bit to work on this land. So at a craft level, those things really interest me in how we see and hear this land in the way we represent it, because it's not just a location. It has to be a character in itself and a black character. Then on what you're saying in, like, if we're talking about solidarity and moving together and creating stories together, you know, that's the dream. I would love to do that, you know, and it's a lot of what, like, why I want to get my craft better. But I also, like, personally, I'm very careful not to co-opt or take up space in creative spaces that have been, you know, made to tell First Nations stories. I think we need to support that work, but we also need to recognise that a lot of, they have done a lot of work to create strong creative spaces to tell their stories. So we have to do that work too for ourselves. But this applies to everyone, mm -hmm. right? Everyone making art on this land, right, is doing so, not just because people have sustained the land for thousands of years, not just because people have been telling stories on this land for thousands of years, but because, like, the actual functioning of the colony like, if we're here, they're getting fucked over. Or if we're here, they're getting screwed. So we always have to be acknowledging that so much happened here. Yes, we want to be the first black people to tell African diaspora stories that everyone loves and successful and critically acclaimed. Yes, we all want to do that. But I personally don't want that at the expense of perpetuating colonisation, the colonial project or those things. From the bottom to my brothers, I got them. Yeah, working to the coffin till I'm in the grave, rotting to make sure I ain't forgotten. I got only one option, just what 99 problems I've been dealing with. Nonsense, sipping on top. My name's Chinonya Madimba. I'm a poet and playwright and screenwriter and theatre director. 
based in London, but born in Nigeria. You've managed to accomplish, you know, incredible things throughout your career, a lot of which took place prior to the recent push for, you know, diversity and amplifying black voices that we've seen in recent years. So what challenges have you faced, not just as a teller of black stories, but also as a black woman asserting herself and, you know, the experiences of her people in a mainly white male dominated field? That's such a big question, but I think that um, I'll start with, I guess, the experience of immigration in of itself. You know, I think that there's a really huge difference that we don't talk about enough about the diasporic experience if you have been born somewhere else and if you then come into a new culture and and in this sense a culture that its dominating feature is is its whiteness and I think that that's a really interesting journey though like I feel really British how I talk is very British you know I like to have tea at a certain time of the day I'm completely like doing all the things, please, thank you, at the wrong times, you know, it's like uh, all those things are really embedded in who I am. But I think it's also important that there is a bit of me that also will always exist within that Nigerian framework that I was brought up in, because those were my formative years. And so I guess where I want to start with the questions about like acknowledging that I don't always see the world in the same way that I think some of my other contemporaries do simply because they were born here. And in some ways I feel like I've experienced secondhand some of the brutalities of colonialism in terms of being brought up in a particular time in a particular place in Nigeria, but also how you know, identity is a really interesting thing and it's a really multi-layered thing. Navigating the UK as a Black British woman is always going to be difficult because most of the land we walk on represents something of the brutality against my ancestors. And so you, you're constantly navigating this stuff. And I guess that what I would say is, how has it been possible for me to navigate that? I think you have to construct for yourself is a very clear idea of what success looks like for you, because you are not a walking picture of success. As a black woman, I've been working in the industry. I've been working in theatre for over 20 years. But when people are looking for someone to talk about theatre from a point of view of experience and almost like knowing something inside and out I'm not the person they come to still because I'm not the picture of success and I'm not the picture of theatre that people have in their heads and that's why I spend so much time examining interrogating playing with the imaginative space because I think we can absolutely do the work and have the fight in terms of the political space and that is a really important space for us to occupy individually and collectively but I think there's quite a lot of work for us to do in the imaginative space what we imagine matters as much as what is real you know so much of the time I ask people what's the picture in your head right now when they say a CEO is walking into the room, I'm not what you picture. And that's really problematic. And so you're navigating all of this stuff 
on a day to day. And it's kind of hard to say you're not always successful in navigating that. And also, I just feel like I've got to constantly make it clear that when I talk about whiteness, I talk about a systemic construct that has been put in place in order to make some people feel that they are superior to other people. So whiteness is a thing that we have to understand is existing in its own kind of machinery. It's not every individual in the same way patriarchy, we are all feeding the machine that is patriarchy on a daily basis. So once you become aware of that, is then you start countering that conditioning on a really conscious level. And all of this is a really long-winded way of answering your question, because I think it's so difficult to talk about how someone like myself navigates even the arts, because where did I start in the arts a single parent largely working consistently for my survival and my daughter's survival but ultimately to start to understand how you might survive and thrive within the arts in the UK I think you have to very quickly establish your own ideas and understanding of what things like success look like what thriving looks like what feeling supported looks like and creating really strong boundaries because that's the thing that we all learn a bit too late. I think what you're saying about our kind of imaginative capabilities is really interesting as well because you're right that when we think of a CEO we think of a white man or a white woman but we certainly don't think of a black woman who was born in Nigeria and then became a single parent in the UK right so I suppose throughout your career like you've clearly got a huge self-awareness of the position you're in and the kind of implications of your success but then in practice how have you persevered throughout your career and you know overcome things like imposter syndrome and constantly feeling out of place yeah I mean I think imposter syndrome is an interesting one because I think it's the one that I've least had to battle nice I'm one of those people that kind of lives by if I'm doing the work no one can say bleep do you know what I mean like as long as I'm doing the work A, I'll be getting better. I'm a big believer that if you do the work, whatever that work is, even if you're only doing it for yourself, and for a long time as a writer, I did it just for myself, you will get better as the thing that you do. So I've been really conscious of that throughout my writing career, that I'm constantly looking for ways to grow and expand in my craft. So that's the first rule that I've held throughout my life. And I guess the reason why I have struggled to feel it in theatre, and and I'm sure there's been people who've made some really big attempts to try and make me feel it, it's because what I do is I tell stories fundamentally. Now, if that's what I do, then there's no way you can convince me that this small island is the place that invented telling stories not when you come from the kind of vast cultural space, you know, of somewhere like Nigeria. It's impossible to convince me that this place invented storytelling. So if I don't believe that lie, then you're going to really struggle to get me to feel out of place in doing that thing. 
And that's where I guess I started. I'm telling stories. Those stories happen to mainly be in theatres. And within that, then I'm coming up against theatrical traditions and theatres rules and, and ways to do that. But I've always been really, really clear about the fact that what I'm doing in theatre a lot of the time is telling stories in a theatrical form that is limited to its Eurocentric Western point of view. I never big it up to be what it's not. It's not how the world should tell stories. It's not even how the world is telling stories. It's how we make theatre here. And every so often those influences from other places obviously bleed into that. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm difficult in theatre. I'm difficult because I don't feel that I'm occupying any space that I shouldn't be occupying. I'm difficult because I'm constantly challenging, well, what do you know? And why are you telling me your way of making theatre is the best way of making theatre? But I guess I'm also difficult because I understand that there is a thing that I want to do with stories and that's all I'm interested in. So what for you, you've kind of touched on it already, but what for you is the importance of storytelling, especially when it comes to Black voices and Black stories? Yeah, I mean, this question is constantly going on for me as a writer. The craft is a big part of it because I'm so interested in not just what stories we tell, but how we tell that and how we confound expectations of the stories and the ways in which we tell those stories. We do live in a culture that we're in the minority, as someone recently called me, a minority writer. And what that means is that a lot of the time, the audiences and the people that are consuming our work are doing so from the point of view of just wanting to be educated. Now, I, if I wanted to be an educator, I would be in a school, I would be in a college, or I would be in a university. I'm not that, you know, but it's a real, it's a real need that people have. And when you don't fulfill that need, they kind of get pissed, right? Because they just want you to deliver. Do you know what I mean? You want to tell me about that particular ritual that you do in your culture you want to tell me about that particular aspect of black culture or african culture you want to tell or west african culture to be more specific you want to tell me about that particular food that you eat you want to tell me about like okay can you do it in a way that i'll understand please and that conversation i have with artists from the global majority on a daily basis because we're constantly wrangling with this we rang with it um, in terms of how our work is dramaturg. So dramaturgy in theatre is basically, you know, when you're writing something, you'll be working with someone to go, oh, the structure feels like it's not quite working here or the story slows down or whatever it is. So, you know, I feel like there's a, there's a whole bit of work to do around dramaturgically how our work is handled, but also that we are we as artists are constantly faced with this dilemma. I want to tell you something about something that I know and it's important to me, but I can't use too many complicated words now. I can't tell you that in a complicated form. Do you see what I mean? You want me to just say it in the plainest English so that you follow along. Now, I can totally see space for that within theatre, but it's just not for me. 
right? So what does that mean in terms of the work that you make? So craft is one of them, but the other thing is the forms in which we tell our stories is also really important because I think now is the time if we can to challenge that, to challenge how what people's expectations are in terms of how we tell our stories. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about in terms of writing, visual arts, drama, like dance, performance, all of it. Like it's just around um, the idea of black trauma and black joy being opposing things. And of course they are opposing things because everything we think about right now is in the binary, which is really frustrating and annoying. (laughs) But also those things are always constantly speaking to each other, right? So how can you celebrate and talk about black hairstyles and the resurgence of cane row and how we're all feeling a bit more empowered to have our natural hair in certain settings? How can you talk about that when actually the history of those hairstyles came directly from the slave trade and women literally plaiting maps. That's where cane rows, plaiting maps into our hair, right? So they're not two opposing things. Some of the things we are now finding joy in, unfortunately, that origins exist in sometimes quite traumatic stories. And equally, some of the things we're now classing as trauma, actually within that, we can still find Joy. And for me, that's why I always come back to the imaginative space and the mythical space in my work, because the mythical space for me is a space for healing. It's a space for for us to have another language, a language that's beyond that kind of written. This is how this is what it looks like when two black people meet on the street, you know, like that's probably why as a writer I've really leaned towards that sort of magic realism mythical space as a form because it is another space that I don't have to quantify I don't have to say in this space we speak Igbo in this space we speak English in this space there are all these rules that's where it becomes open imaginatively because again this is the other thing about being a black artist if you're a black artist Everyone does assume what you're putting on stage is a reflection of your life, you know? And it's really interesting that because on one hand, I sort of don't mind it. But on the other hand, it's it's like an, another writer can write about the politics that's happening right now in Westminster. Or even they can write about a politician and his wife and something happening at home for them. And no one will assume that that's based on their life. But if I was to write the same story, they would literally be like, oh, are you the daughter? (laughs) So it's I always find it quite fascinating. And that's happened to me quite a few times. And there's been even reviews that have assumed that the characters that I've put on stage are expressing either my own opinions or are expressing my own personal relationships and it's really difficult when you see that because I'm like I my imagination is so it's almost been a problem for me my whole life because I have this massive imaginative 
sense. And so the majority of what I've written has not been anywhere close to who I am, <laughs> like what my life has been. And it's so fascinating. There's this constant assumption that your imaginative self is really limited, that all you want to ever put on stage is yourself, which is very strange. All the time you're being told that. And that's that's what feels, I do regularly feel quite tired. Really, most of the time it gets tiring. But it should never stop you from doing the work. That's the hill I will die on. Another form of storytelling which I think is equally as important but definitely engages a different part of the mind is photography. I would say photography helps cultures stay connected across borders more than any other form of storytelling because it doesn't matter whether you can read or write, it doesn't matter what language you speak, as long as you can see the image or it can be described to you, you can get what it's about. I don't know why they think we're alike When I win it's like I give them life The photographic depiction of black bodies, though, has historically been dictated by the white gaze, and so for a long time it was non-consensual and exploitative. But now, in recent decades, there's a growing legacy of black photographers who have reclaimed the camera across the diaspora, shining a light onto the natural beauty within black people, culture and history. I think of late great photographers like Gordon Parks and Malik Sidibe, and the beautiful yet poignant works they were able to produce with only a subject and a camera. No fluff, no filters, just some black people in a camera. Someone who knows a thing or two about working with some black people in a camera is Richmond Kobladido, a Ghanaian photographer from Sydney, whose work highlights the vulnerability all too often discouraged, ignored or preyed upon in black communities, particularly among black men. Having roots in mainland Africa, his constant depictions of vulnerability, love and affection of and between black bodies stands in direct opposition with the norms of the land, where soft emotion is still largely seen as effeminate, irrational and as something that should be suppressed. My name is Richmond Kogladido. I'm originally from Ghana in, in West Africa, and I'm a photographer and creative director based here in Sydney. From what I've gathered from your work is that, if anything, it's almost guaranteed to be frowned upon by older aunties and uncles living in Africa, or even over here or in Australia. Um, who still carry that, you know, that continent-wide mentality that vulnerability is weakness and that being publicly vulnerable is worse than death and should be avoided at all costs. So where did your initial desire to, you know, depict Black people in the way that you do come from and what what's pushed you to continue on that route? I guess um, the simplest way to explain it is that for me, I, I started photography primarily as a as a way of dealing with my own kind of um, emotions and um, trying to understand them. 
um, it came to me at a at a very um, low point in my life and um, so I kind of like would take my camera with me everywhere I used to go for walks and literally just um, snapping and being around nature so um, I, I guess it was more of a natural progression um, for me as I moved um, over here to Australia and reached out then now it's kind of it transformed itself from now shooting nature to incorporating people and that way it also allowed me to express myself through others as well and in doing so we kind of realized we we kind of shared the same similar kind of um stories in a way so um yeah for me it's just been a natural progression and it's something that I I hope to continue as I continue to evolve and, and learn more. Nice. That's really nice that you were able to channel the way you were feeling at that time into something so beneficial to yourself, but also to other people. Because I think obviously, I know when I see your photography and your work, it's almost always shocking and surprising in the best type of way. Because it's not often that you see black people oftentimes with your work, black men depicted in such a raw kind of vulnerable state. And I think what's different about your work is that it doesn't depict the vulnerability as something to pity or feel sad about. You're just simply and beautifully putting it out there that yes, black people are vulnerable too. And that's neither a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it's a fact of life. Um, what, What does it mean to you? Or why is it important that you highlight black experiences in the way that you do? I think like um, living in a country such as Australia, where there's such little representation of, of, of black lived experiences here, I feel like it's, it's so important because like when you look at the black people in the diaspora um, specifically, and I'm referring to black people because that's my lived experience and that's the, the, the community in which I primarily um, um, work within. Um, you know, when you look at other countries like, you know, the UK or the US and stuff, there's kind of that open um, representation or at least some of it to a certain extent um, anyway, where it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot more of that representation over there in those countries. But here in Australia, it's still, um, it's a little bit backwards in terms of the way people within the Black communities especially within the Black migrant um, communities are seen as well. So for me, living here in Australia, being able to actually meet people who are also willing and um, to be open in, um, and vulnerable in front of the camera is, is, is just shining that light that uh, there are many ways in which we live our lives um, beyond the normal stereotypes that uh, unfortunately society has placed upon us. I think that's so sick because something that I've noticed both in visual arts and in music um, and maybe even other forms of art in Australia, the collaborative process is so much more organic and you just end up working with a bunch of people you respect, but also a bunch of people who are your friends in real life because that's what the scene is. Like, Because the scene is so small, we're all mates, isn't it? So do you feel like that's like afforded you a lot more creative freedom in terms of like what you can create, who you can create with um, and the creative process? Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely helped along the way because um, you know, like you said, like it, it seems like the, the the industry is still quite small. But I also think it's also due to the the lack of support. So uh, a lot of the time, you find that when you're working on projects, you don't have the kind of financial 
age that, um, you know, let's say a more established um, creators um, or even like um, those from the other race might might be able to, to afford. So, um, you know, in terms like that, that's where it kind of like the power of community comes comes in. And then, you know, so if you're able to reach out to your friend who's able to then um, assist you with their own kind of like um, passion, you know, so if you have a friend who's doing, who loves to do hair, then, you know, then it's kind of like you can bring them on board and yeah, that kind of like, yeah, it becomes that community base. I, I find a lot of the projects that we do does feel like a community-based or community-led projects. Uh, again, which kind of like makes it even more um, fulfilling because then it's kind of like you are both coming together with the with the same passion and shared interests and reaching the power of that story. Yeah. Where do you get your inspiration for the scenes that you represent? Because one thing I've noticed about your work is that it almost feels like a snapshot from a dance. It almost feels like the, your subjects are just out there like doing a contemporary dance or something and you just captured like the perfect moment. <laughs> There's like a way you manage to incorporate a fluidity to these still images that's really impressive and it makes it seem like they're part of a bigger picture and a bigger story. So like where do you draw your inspiration from and like how do you how do you set up the scenes that you end up shooting? Yeah, I guess um, honestly... Um... From the beginning, I, I guess what showed me the power of um, photography was uh, I went to an art exhibition in London called uh, 154 Art. Uh, it's, it's held across London, Paris, New York, and now Marrakesh, um, I believe. And um, during that exhibition, I saw the works of um, Malik Sadibe, and, and it was showcasing his earlier works of, of life in Bamako in Mali and just seeing how he depicted the nice life of those people there yeah it, it shone a light uh, on it because like for me as an African growing up you know first of all we didn't have access to these kind of like gallery spaces so we didn't really get to see how much um, things were back in the in the days so uh, when I moved over to Australia and I found that um, I was struggling to, to find people from the community that I could, you know, um, connect with and stuff, um, I went to a few different events and that kind of like opened up um, the horizon to, to our, our experiences here, you know. So um, I guess like, yeah, part of my, my, my process is kind of like rooted in going to these events and and seeing our people just living their lives um, because that was very important to me. You know, before I came to Australia, I tried to um, research um, the black lived experience because unfortunately, like, you know, as black people, anytime we want to travel to another country, we're trying to see how black people are treated in those countries. Like it, it is, but um, it, it is part of the process. And for, for Australia, it was very difficult to find ex- examples of that. So uh, yeah, when I when I came over, uh, I I made it kind of like a personal mission to uh, try to highlight as much of that as I could find. So um, in the earlier part of my my process, um, I tried to depict um, our our lived experiences, um, and then over time, it's kind of evolved just yeah. along the, like a natural progression, because for me, I want my work to reflect. Um, the stages of my life, so to speak. 
So yeah, um, it, my first couple of projects was about exploring my African identity um, as uh, as someone in the diaspora. So if you go back to my earlier works, like uh, my work with Sunday Best, it was highlighting um, the African identity through the the, the clothing and, and and our way of dressing up. Um, and then now I'm more on the journey of um, dealing with like mental health and my own mental um, exploration of what it means to be a man. So, um, yeah, so now it's kind of like my work is kind of <laughs> influenced by those ideals. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mental reflection of, of who I am. It's nice that you have that kind of personal connection to your work. And I'm so glad you mentioned Malik Sidibe because I can definitely see the influences. And I suppose because your work does centre around blackness so much, I'm sure that you know, you acknowledge, whether it's within your creative process or, or implicitly within your work, the kind of artistic landscape that that you're making a name for yourself in, which obviously has and continues to build upon the legacy of the traditional custodians of the land. And, you know, their art continues to go overlooked in a lot of circles. So given its centrality to literally all of the art that's created on this land, what role does the legacy of Indigenous art play in your creations? And like, how do you feel you acknowledge the history of the country in your work? Ever since um, I moved over here to Australia, um, I've made it a, a point of, of, of reference for myself to kind of like understand what it means to truly live and work on this land. Because I do recognize that this is not my land and I'm literally just uh, one of the, the, the settlers uh, on this land. and. From um, speaking to a few of my Black Indigenous uh, brothers and sisters, what I've actually found is there's not so much of a, of a difference between our, our cultures, so to speak. Uh, we actually do have a lot of shared history between ourselves. And I find that it's actually very important that as Africans especially, we need to... Um, do a bit more education to um, acknowledge the the impasse that we also contribute um, to their experiences here um, in, in Australia. So for me, it's kind of like I always try to root every work that I do um, to pay respect to the land that I, I work on. Another form of storytelling which, like photography, doesn't use any words, but I think carries even more everyday relevance to the people of the diaspora, is dance. There's genuinely nothing I've personally witnessed bring black people of all origins together more than dance, and chee, do we do it well. I mean, not me personally, I wasn't blessed with rhythm like that, unfortunately, Um, but someone who does do it well, infinitely better than I ever could, is Malik Nashad Sharp, a choreographer and performer from London, whose artistry goes beyond just shaking a leg the movements in their performances come together like pieces of a puzzle to tell a striking and insanely beautifully executed story hey 
My name is Malik Nishad Sharp, and uh, I'm a choreographer and a movement director based in London, um, but I'm originally from New York, and I make work under the alias Marcus Cry Cry Cry, which I started um, a few years ago, basically to have a long-term project where I interrogate um, choreographically um, the intersection between marginalization and melancholia and choreography as a place where we can study what it is to be like to be a person to be a human to be what we are um and so yeah that's me <laughs> so this podcast is about you know exploring how black people push beyond and redefine the mainstream and I think you do that in a way that's different to anyone I've interviewed on the show before. Um, not just because you're a dancer, but also because you don't fit into any box. And it seems like you don't subscribe to the idea of being placed in any box anyways and being defined by these arbitrary words. Um, so how does your identity, whether it's defined or undefined, influence your creations and your creative process? I think that identity is important and has been important uh it is the things that i'm marked by in the world and i feel that in so many ways like i'm not ignorant to it so just by nature of how it feels like this world is set up uh it just feels like identity is inevitable or it's going to be inevitably influential to the things that I make um and uh so it does really influence in some ways but the thing is you know my interest in humanizing myself but also just humanizing the black experience and whatever that is um it feels as though like identity is not everything either and it's important for me with my identity characteristics you know being black being queer and stuff like that is that actually I'm not only those things and the things that I experience are not only um through those things like I feel like that's quite liberating and important for like any marginalized experiences. It's like the job of an artist, right? To kind of dream things and to like reflect things upon the society. And um, it's really socially radical practice to be doing choreography or dancing or, you know what I mean? These are tapping on like human traditions that are as old as humanity itself. And also there's something very human about witnessing and, you know, and so like, I don't know, like, doing that and that, that being my job in life and people recognizing that that does something is like so amazing <laughs> mm. now i might have mentioned this to you already but the way i found out about you was actually through your performance he's dead um which explored the overlooked mental health struggles of the black community against a hip-hop kind of tupac-esque background um, and an article I read in Galdem about you described your live art as a trap party where only black emos are invited. And I honestly couldn't have described it better myself. I don't think I've ever been as flawed by a performance. 
um, as I was by He's Dead. It was so incredible and completely changed the way I look at dance as an art form and the friend I was with felt the same way. Um, so as an art form that's so intrinsically linked to blackness, what role does your relationship with blackness and black culture play in your relationship with dance? And how do you build a performance around that? Thank you so much for like such an amazing, um, yeah, like thank you so much for saying such amazing things about my work. I really appreciate it. And, um, I'm glad that it like resonated with you in some way. And yeah, I think because I was a black emo kid, like in, you know, New York and New York was kind of a centerpiece for emo culture or like emo, yeah, like the emo movement had definitely a really strong New York um, context. And so, but also like I grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods or predominantly immigrant neighborhoods. And so the stuff that we listen to is so wide and so big. And I don't know, I just feel like I am a product in a way of where I grew up and the body that I have and how I walk through the world as like a black person that everyone sees as that. And so therefore, you know what I mean? Like it's it's not the same treatment typically and you can feel that all the time. So I feel like the relationship to like, you know, my blackness and black culture is really intrinsic and it's like it's like wide open as well. You know, because I I also think like blackness is so big and it's not really like a monolith. Um, it's like a really, really big thing and has so many amazing, like, it's literally the source of so much in this world, like, culturally has started within black communities. And so, and that's just like a fact. <laughs> and so like, I don't know, the relationship is so intrinsic and so... I don't know, I, f I feel really lucky to have had the experiences that I've had um, in life, which means that I can kind of really be unafraid to work with the references that I have. Like, everything that I'm working with is stuff that has come up in my life before, you know? Like, wanting to work with, you know, this question about Tupac and whether he was depressed. Um... You know, like, I grew up listening to Tupac because my mom was listening. I remember, like, listening to Tupac with my mom in the car, driving to Flatbush <laughs> in her little green car. Like, these are memories that I have. So, like, of course, sometime later in life, it comes up that it's, that I want to, you know, I'm like, I started, I, I, you know, I remember I was just listening to, I was doing research um, at this archives, um, this, uh, these Buto archives called the Tatsume Jikata archives in Tokyo and I remember just like walking around and um all of a sudden I just started listening to um Tupac's album Me Against the World you know what I mean like it comes from the relationship really comes from like who I am how I've grown up the references that I have and so I work with the stuff that I know and you know I grew up like black in the United States I live as a black person in Britain um and I can experience and look at and point to so many 
situations where that's made that's been made super apparent to me (laughs) you know what i mean like your your blackness becomes really really apparent to you whether it's not whether it's like by like the treatment you see of black people in the media or the way someone responds to you in the street or when someone says you know who doesn't you know give you the job because they don't think you're ready for it and they'll never think you're ready for it (laughs) um stuff like that you know it all comes from the experiences that i have had and it plays like literally in such a crucial role like i won't have another frame or another reference Mm. it's honestly incredible how you've mastered this kind of relationship it seems like a mutually beneficial relationship that you have with dance and you know choreography um and you know (laughs) speaking as someone who's rhythmically challenged like it's no small feat to be able to dance the way that you do um, but then to also be able to choreograph and put together these live art performances that seem to strike everyone in the same way um, is incredible, really. So what advice would you have for any youngins or anyone really whose creative vision or craft like yours doesn't fit in with the mainstream? Um, you know, how do you overcome the kind of rigidity of institutions and of expectations from your own community and of the white gaze and all the other kind of challenges that might come up throughout your career um i get so nervous about giving like advice um because uh everyone's like experience is so unique and and there's no easy paths to doing what you want or making your vision alive um, without a lot of bumps and failures along the way. And that's pretty much how I learned everything is through trial and error and just like trying things and trying to make things happen. But I think the most important thing is like, you know, I think I could just say for myself, like trying to believe in yourself. It's for me not it's not like my natural way of being. Like I'm super self-critical and have like a natural um, kind of ruthless self-criticism that I'm always trying to work with. But at some point, you have to try to really believe that you can achieve something. You can make your vision come alive. You can do what you want because we need to really push for our freedom in any, in every way that we can. And so it's like... If you say that, if you like try to affirm that for yourself, then I believe that things start to fall into your path. You know, if you really work at the thing that you really want to be in the world or how you what you really want to say and anything like that, like once you believe in yourself with that, then I think you can achieve so much. Yeah, I think that that would be my only advice. Um, And yeah, how do how do I overcome the rigidity of the institutions um it's an ongoing process I have no answers for this really (laughs) because I'm going through it I'm living it it is my life and and it is challenging um in so many ways because it's 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 a lot of things but it is really time consuming you know when you really could be working on your shit you know you could be doing your practice or half the time is spent like trying to make a space for yourself <laughs> and you know trying to really convince people to help you or to support you and it always comes with some attachments in some way you know it's not like 
easy and breezy <laughs> and free <laughs> it always comes with so you know you just always are working with that and I don't know I don't know how I feel about it at the moment I just I am trying to make changes in my career in some ways like just thinking about what I can do you know with making choreography or with the skills that I have picked up through making choreography about working with people about performance about gesture about the form of dance form in general the stage so I don't know if that says something about how I feel about working with, with rigid institutions but at the moment I'm trying to I'm trying to overcome and move on a little bit from them in a way um yeah hearing what my guests have to say it's clear that storytelling is an indispensable part of blackness we wouldn't be here without it we wouldn't have culture without it and we'd have nothing to leave our youngins without it What I think is even more beautiful is that storytelling doesn't have to look or sound a certain way. It seems to me that as long as the person telling the story is doing so from a place of love, the end product's going to be amazing regardless. Perfect example are all the people I interviewed for this episode. They have such an obvious love for the craft and their end products are always amazing. And what's more is once they get through the door, they're not locking it behind them. They're holding it open for the next generation of photographers, screenwriters, playwrights, any type of storyteller. Because what's the point of storytelling if you can't carry on the legacy and at the end of the day that's what storytelling is about it's about sharing love and experiences to enrich the culture and give the future generations what they need to keep the stories coming that is all for race matters this week You've been listening to Beyond Borders, a series produced by Binta Yard. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters, including the first two in this series, at fbiradio.com slash race matters. 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 Race matters.